Happy New Year, and welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. With each new year comes a plethora of predictions about what hot new flavors, ingredients, and cuisines will influence what Americans will eat in the coming months. In the past few years, our diet has become heavily influenced by foods and beverages from around the world, with many consumers clamoring for quote-unquote authentic ethnic cuisines. And despite a renewed nationalism in the U.S. that grew out of the presidential election, flavors and dishes from far reaches of the world and lesser-known cultures will continue to heavily influence what Americans eat in 2017. But as we all know, the world is a big place. So to help narrow down which countries, cultures, and flavors will most influence what Americans will eat this year, I caught up with Julie Meyer, who is a founding partner of Eat Well Global. Eat Well Global is a nutrition communication company that is particularly well-suited to address this topic and to help companies navigate the opportunities and challenges posed by emerging global influences. I say this because it has representatives on the ground, not just in the U.S., but also the Netherlands and Argentina. And Julie in particular has experience in China and other hot spots around the world. So drawing from this global experience, Julie predicts American cuisine will continue to fuse with that of other cultures in 2017, despite the political changes here. And she noted a few particular international ingredients to watch. Every year, our cuisines get more and more global, and it's very exciting to see, even as our politics turn here in the U.S., that we are so open-minded still from a culinary perspective. We are also not only globally focused, but very adventuresome. So we're always looking for the next thing, the newest, the hottest, um, the thing that nobody's tried before. So, um, for example, uh, when I was living in Asia, we had jackfruit. We saw jackfruit sitting in the market. We didn't know what to do with it. It was sort of a giant, really ugly, strange thing. Um, and I remember having it and just not being very excited about it, um, but imagining that it had a lot of potential, not quite knowing what to do with it. Fast forward to 20, end of 2016, I'm at my local Park Slope Food Co-op in Brooklyn, and there's three different kinds of jackfruit being used as a vegetarian substitute. So something that's been growing in Asia for years now is something that's being seen as uh, spiced with uh, barbecue, as a, um, as a meat substitute on a sandwich. Um, I bought one that was sort of a chili lime. That was an easy thing to just you know, pop into your mouth. So I think the jackfruit um, would definitely be something I'm seeing that's continuing to grow as a trend uh, coming from Asia. I have spent a lot of time recently in South America, and Brazil is just a complete bastion of new, exciting things, a lot of things I had never seen before at the fruit and vegetable market. I was shocked. I thought I'd seen everything, and there was at least 10 fruits and vegetables I'd never seen before in my life. Uh, But something I'm seeing coming out of Brazil that I think has a lot of potential here is tapioca. And while tapioca is a starch, um, it is very low in fat, it's very high in fiber, uh, it's high in minerals, and uh, it's very filling. So it's a starch that's used in many different things in Brazil, but one way that they're using it is as a 
crepe that you can use yeah, heated up and then served with either savory or sweet, um, you know, a toppings, and it can be a meal or it could be a snack. Um, but again, it's very filling um, and it's very versatile. So instead of thinking of tapioca usually as a pudding, it can be used as a great tapioca flour and gluten-free. Um, I think the other thing that we're really seeing would be um, as we're learning more and more about, of course, we know the health benefits of fish. Um, so coming out of Nordic countries, the different and diverse ways that fish can be um, eaten in really convenient forms. I think people feel still intimidated by fish. I think fish prices can be quite expensive. Um, people don't quite know how to prepare it. They know they should eat it, but they don't know how to eat it. Um, so Nordic trends were saying things like fish jerkies or salmon jerkies or ways that um, it can be dried, but in a very flavorful, very accessible way. Um, so I think yeah, sort of, you know, the alternative protein concept, um, fish coming out of Norway, I think would be another interesting one. I'd say lastly, um, coming out of Africa really is where you're seeing a lot of these super interesting grains. Um, I think the whole grain story, um, test I think is one that has been sort of, you know, batting up and down on the, um, you know, kind of emerging. Um, and I think people are starting to understand how to cook with it more. Uh, what we saw at Food Vision talking about the, uh, uh, talking about steel cut oats as something that can be very versatile, where you've always sort of thought of it as something that would be part of uh, breakfast or, you know, something that you cook on a Sunday morning, but now it's something that can be part of your everyday diet. So teff, I think, has traditionally just been thought of as part of injera, the African bread um, that you eat. Now people are baking with teff. Teff is being used in uh, multi-grain cereals. It's being used in breads. Um, so I think we're going to start seeing more of some of those African grains being used in other ways. Beyond these ingredients, Julie also predicts fermented foods and beverages such as sauerkraut, pickles, kombucha, and drinking vinegar will continue to gain traction as Americans learn more about the health benefits of these products and continue to seek more complex flavors. In addition, she said tubers and roots from around the world are starting to take hold in the U.S. diet. Specifically, she noted cassava, yams, taro, and sweet potatoes are all being used in more diverse ways to create complex flavors and new textures. Now, some of these predictions we've heard before. Take Brazilian food, for example. This was a big prediction in 2016, based on the belief that the Olympics would expose Americans to the host country's more unique dishes and ingredients. And while some Brazilian foods have worked their way into the diets of niche consumer groups, much of the success comes from efforts that began long before the Olympics and long before 2016. Which begs the question, how long does it take for a flavor or food to go from being an optimistic New Year's prediction to being a realistic option in restaurants and retail stores for the average consumer? Well, Julie admitted that many New Year's predictions actually take a couple of years to fully develop due to consumer education, supply chain, and product development issues, all of which can take a while to address. Uh, certainly looking at Brazil, the acai berry is a really good example of, of the trend, watching the trend come up and then come down again. I feel like it was probably about 2005, 2006, 2007, started to see it for the first time. Samsung came out, they're starting to talk about it, and everybody was 
pronouncing it wrong and didn't know what it was or where it came from. Um, and then I think we saw a real peak, I'd say, in the last, you know, maybe two, three years. And then uh, some of the other sort of Brazilian superfruits coming along as well. Um, I would say for, uh, for something like if we're saying Brazilian um, foods, which has continued to rise, um, I would say in the next couple years, one of the challenges in addition to um, it, well, one of the challenges I think Brazil is facing is the economic crisis that they've been in and some of the upheaval in their political situation. However, the prediction is that by year 2020, they will be back on solid ground. So uh, from the export side, I, there, there is so much ready to flood our market that they haven't quite had the funds yet to bring it to us yet. So I think there's the interest and the idea, um, and I think once once the markets start really flooding and um, they're able to bring more products to us, we'll start to see more and it will become, uh, it will continue to grow, um, I think, during that time. Um, Let's pull from the yeah. there, which is this idea of what challenges come when we're bringing in new cuisine. So you mentioned everyone's struggle with pronouncing acai. So we have struggles around uh, educating consumers, presumably in supply chain, like you were just mentioning. Can you talk us through some of those major challenges and how companies can best address them or brace for them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I was thinking about uh, Thanksgiving, as I was shopping for Thanksgiving, looking at the massive amounts of cranberries, turkeys, and sweet potatoes, and the, the 12 items that everybody buys at Thanksgiving, and thinking how lucky all those purveyors were that the people buy the exact same thing every year. So every year, there's probably X number of people plus or minus, who are buying turkeys and cranberries, and the turkey and cranberry industry have figured out how to satisfy that. All of a sudden, quinoa blasts on the scene to Thanksgiving Day level purchases, but they are not prepared for having it ready. And you really want to make hay while the sun shines. So when everybody has decided that you are the it thing, you have to be ready to mobilize as fast as possible. I think a couple things people can do. One is um, prepare. In advance, it's hard when you're uh, up and coming on the market to prepare for the possibility of exponential success, uh, but to really be looking at how to scale up. I know when I hear a lot of the investors talking to entrepreneurs, they're always asking them, how are they, how, what is their plan to scale up? Um, so I think as uh, as people are coming into the market, think about what, what would happen if they did become uh, very successful and, and would they be able to scale up quickly? Um, I think another thing they can do is, um, we call it sort of spreading the love. So uh, especially if, if a company is operating in one space, think about how they can partner broadly. So um, an example that's coming to mind using quinoa is mobilizing. So mobilizing, um, whether it's on a global scale or on a national scale, the outlets that would be available to support. Um, in a partnership so that, that you can really move forward, that what's good for one company is good for everybody. So instead of saying, well, we're just going to, you know, forge ahead as fast as we can and take all the market share, imagining what would happen if you did that but then weren't able to satisfy the trend and the trend goes away. So imagining how you'd want to um, partner with other organizations to try to do that. Um, the other thing, too, is getting, I'd say, a way to even um, create that demand is to get ahead of it. Um, certainly one thing that we advise our clients to do is to uh, work in the research area, so to help identify new um, health benefits, uh, uh, health benefits um, 
uh, you know, look at look at your product from a broad perspective, um, certainly in terms of who your potential target market is, but also who you may be um, interested in working with. So, so a way to create demand is to uh, do nutrition research around your product so that you are um, able to have sort of the, the, the verifiable information to include in your story as you're telling your story. And that's one way that we see the increase in demand. So I think if you're looking at those three things together, you're able to increase the demand, you're able to have a broad partnership, and then really plan ahead from the beginning so that you're able to get to the point where you can really, um, you know, accomplish your goals. You mentioned the political upheaval in the U.S. Um, and we have seen this rise in nationalism here. To what extent is that going to influence our food options or uh, influencers going forward? Are we going to see a return of the Freedom Fries and mm. no more injera? I hope not. I think uh, my, my take on what's going to happen is we're going to continue to be incredibly polarized. I think the American food scene is going to be divided 48-47. I live in Brooklyn. Everybody I know eats injera. They know what it is when I mention it. They are perfectly comfortable with a wide variety of global foods. They want to know where it came from. They want to know who made it. They want it to be healthy. They want it to be non-GMO. You know, they want all that. And I believe there's another large portion of our country who doesn't really care. They don't really care where it's from. They don't, they aren't, potentially are not as health conscious. Um, they sort of want their food how they want it, where they want it, in as much quantity as they want it, and they feel really comfortable with that. I think the challenge that we're going to continue to face is rising healthcare costs, um, because what we've seen, the challenge with that way of life, while it's certainly their right to feel that way, is that chronic diseases will become very costly and continue to grow for them. Um, so I believe down the road there might be more perspective on how to use nutrition and health to try to mitigate some of that expenses, but I think that's going to be very far down the road. Um, but I think we're just going to see a very polarized country when it comes to food and nutrition. So the large food manufacturers are potentially making food for two very diverse audiences. They have to have the all the hot buttons that, um, you know, that potentially a more urban coastal group is looking for and then offering consumers that aren't necessarily fitting that profile what they're looking for as well. It seems like it could also create a positive opportunity when you look at it through the local food movement lens. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll see a bigger push in that? So I'm thinking like Kansas City barbecue or some of these really Americana-type foods, are they going to come out to the coast? Mm. So we'll have American cuisine? <laughs> I would say I would say we already see it. I would say we already see it. Just using, you know, New York and Brooklyn as an um, example, we have the lobster roll craze, you know, off the charts. I guess that's coastal, um, but the yes, absolutely barbecue, you know, to the hilt, um, Texas, you know, Tex-Mex. Um, but at the same time, we see it in equal and similar numbers to the Oaxacan restaurants, to the Nordic cuisine, to the uh, you know, Baltic <laughs> sandwiches, you know. Um, so I think 
I think from a culinary perspective, I think they will continue to have their niche, their niches. Um, but I don't see on the coast, you know, I think that they'll just be considered one of the one of the packs, one of the interesting different things that we have at our disposal. And I also see many of the hybrids too, the crossing over. So you know, uh, Oaxacan barbecue, or um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think like a classic, you know, lobster, a curry lobster roll, or you know, ways that that they'll continue to fuse. Um, I don't know about the middle of the country. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know if regional cuisine will continue to be very, um, I don't know if regional cuisine within the region, so example, people in Kansas will feel that they need to be eating more Kansas City barbecue, and be more nationalistic. Um, they may be less likely to eat international food, but I don't know if they'll be as focused really on their, their own um, local, you know, what's sort of local to them. As exciting as exploring new flavors and dishes from around the world is, Julie notes that manufacturers also need to continue to promote healthy eating through reformulation and advertising, a task which has never been easy and could become more difficult or at least less pressing as new leadership in the country shifts the nation's attention away from nutrition and exercise and towards other priorities. Despite this turmoil, Julie predicts Americans' battle with sugar will remain a top issue in 2017 for consumers. Julie notes other ongoing nutrition touch points for manufacturers and public health advocates to watch will be sodium levels in foods, both packaged and at restaurants. She also predicts high fiber and high protein will continue to be important to consumers. However, she cautioned that the days of random fortification are over and that adding fiber, protein, and other vitamins and minerals to products needs to make sense at the consumer level. For example, she noted consumers know to look for protein in bars, but placing it in a clear beverage might be a turnoff to some shoppers, in part because it's so unexpected. Beyond that, though, Julie says incorporating health claims into marketing can be a significant positive for companies, provided they do so responsibly. So I would say one of the, the challenges and benefits around incorporating nutrition into the marketing message is that consumers want an excuse to have your product. They want to hear good news about your product. Um, they want to know that it's healthier, that they're making a healthier choice to feel good about themselves and pat themselves on the back. I also think what we're seeing and some consumer research we've done is that consumers are really savvy. I mean, we had a panel of moms, and when we asked them where they get their nutrition information from, they said two of them spoke up and said the New England Journal of Medicine is where they get their nutrition information from. Um, so I, I think that they're, they're very, very savvy. So you want to be sure that whatever nutrition messaging you're using is really accurate because consumers, a certain group of consumers is going back and actually really verifying your information. So I think making sure that you're thinking of your nutrition story, using a credible expert to communicate it, being really consistent in your packaging and consistent in your labeling, consistent in your communication around it, I think nutrition is such an important part of why people are going to want to choose your products. So I think some of the challenges around um, claims, again, is, is the potential for um, inconsistency from a consumer perspective. So making a claim, you know, that this brownie is, you know, totally heart healthy or it, you know, that, that 
it, it, again, like just something that's not a reasonable sort of expectation for a product. I think consumers can get a bit jaded when they've seen claims that don't really um, aren't don't really jive with the product, aren't well communicated, aren't credible, um, and then there's a lot of cynicism. So I think that the um, challenge is just making sure that you're telling you're telling your nutrition story in a really authentic way. You're telling your nutrition story with consistent messaging using the right method of, or using the right spokesperson for communication um, and, and uh, connecting with the right audience around it. So how can companies successfully navigate this challenge and ensure they select the right message and the right spokesperson to reach increasingly savvy consumers in the new year? Well, Julie has a few thoughts on those issues as well, but You'll have to wait until next week's episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast to find out. Until then, this is Elizabeth Crawford, again wishing you a happy and prosperous new year.